OpenSSL is a free, open-source cryptographic library that provides secure communications over computer networks. It's widely used to implement the Secure Socket Layer (SSL) and Transport Layer Security (TSL) protocols, which are the basis for secure encrypted connections on the internet. On October 25th, the OpenSSL project informed its users of a critical vulnerability that affects the 3.0 and later versions of the OpenSSL component. In a twist to the usual formula, the project gave the world a week's advance notice of the upcoming update, and various stakeholders prepared for this accordingly. In this episode, we sat down with Ilka Tarunin, Sonotype's field CTO. We discussed a wide range of topics including the OpenSSL vulnerability, Shodan, SBOMs, software supply chain, and more. This episode is hosted by Jeff Hemmen. To know more about Jeff, visit the show notes. Ilka Turunen, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. Ilka, uh, do you want to introduce yourself, um, a bit of your professional curriculum, what work experience you have, uh, what makes you qualified to talk about the OpenSSL vulnerability that is the topic of today's uh, episode, um, and then your interests technologically, and then also maybe one non-technological interest. I wonder what it could be. Man, that was really putting me on the spot and getting my imposter syndrome going uh, with that sort of question. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, my name is Ilka Turunen. I'm the uh, field CTO at a company called Sonatype. So, Myself, I'm um, I'm a software engineer by uh, training. I've uh, worked in uh, the industry for uh, well over a decade now in, in various different roles. Started out actually running a pirate uh, chiptune website uh, about uh, twelve years ago. Um, uh, you know, kind of programming things in PHP, and uh, since then reformed into um, into higher order languages uh, and various different things. I spent uh, part of my career doing kind of early cloud uh, computing, CI/CD, DevOps uh, type of work, uh, both in uh, Finland, where I'm originally from, as well as London, uh, where I'm now based. Um, and for the last seven years, I've worked at Sonotype, who are a specialist uh, at uh, software supply chain, as we like to call it in the industry now. So, you know, very, very nice term. But really what that means is um, is uh, we focus on helping customers understand the consumption and usage of open source when it comes to using open source libraries, packages, uh, things like this that help them power uh, the world. I mean, I don't think anyone listening to this particular podcast really needs to be sold on the fact that open source is everywhere. But, you know, the volume still, you know, boggles the mind. This year, there's about three trillion pieces of open source being downloaded. So in my capacity, I work with uh, organizations literally across the world to help them understand this chain of dependencies, implement tools uh, such as our Nexus Suite uh, to um, you know, uh, understand and sometimes uh, alert them on risks like you know, known security vulnerabilities, like a critical security vulnerability in uh, OpenSSL or something like this. And, um, and I really, I guess that's what makes me qualified. Uh, you know, I often say in a sort of, you know, laconic sense that I have, like, I'm very interested professionally in the most boring part of software development. Nobody really wants to do dependency management. That's why we call it dependency hell. And yet I, I really like it. It's, uh, it's fascinating. There's a network effect. 
there's a whole ecosystem and a, and a series of communities that power it. And guess what? It's, uh, it's the reason why open source runs the world. So, so that's me professionally. Uh, um, privately, as I've kind of hinted, right? Uh, I've always had a bit of a bit of a very bad musical sound. I'm not very good at playing instruments. But over lockdown, I got into uh, really bad synthesizers. And, you know, I told you last time when we when we attempted recording that it sounds like uh, like Ross from uh, Friends playing the synth, you know, little mule. But uh, yeah, I'm yeah. learning. I, I do it for my own good. With the chopper sound. Um, yeah, I, I remember. And I remember talking about what um, my best friend does also. And in order to keep this um, conversation as authentic as possible, I haven't actually double checked with him what it is that he does. Because I, I mix up all the terms. He comes out with synthesizers and oscilloscopes and I don't know any of it. But um, he basically takes the, the all the manual things that you do and he, he kind of put it wow. into an app so you can connect the, the wires from one to another and it nice. sounds absolutely horrendous so, as well but i kind of love it oh yeah no that's modular synthesis one-on-one -on -one. it literally literally is a series of oscillators so synthesizing is really just shaping a waveform you know that's uh, produced by oscillators by applying filters and other modifiers in into it really that's fundamentally what it is and uh, modular is fun like that because you can really plug things in and uh, you know listen to space landscapes for seven hours and uh, and uh, really not have made any music at all, but it was a fun time. I believe that's exactly what it is because you use the word uh, modular and that is one that he uses a lot. So that must be exactly the same. There thing. we are. He's, he's hardcore. I just I just have a keyboard <laughs> uh, that uh, allows me to play you know, sixteen sounds. Yeah, well, it's all about. Um, that flow activity, just really getting into something that, um, that that works for us. So speaking of stuff that doesn't work for us, can you tell us about the recent vulnerability, the one that came out on the 1st of November? Let's start at a, at a high level. If I don't really know or care about the code of the implementation, I just use uh, OpenSSL as part of my uh, dependency chain, which is very very likely how does this affect me how does this manifest for me yeah really good question that so let's uh let's do the very very one-on-one thing what is open ssl well it's a it's a tool um that is used to generate cryptography um and encrypt communications and connections so nearly every website in the world that runs uh, runs HTTPS, as in you know, secure encrypted connections between a client and the web server. Um, probably has the certificates that powers that uh, that uh, encryption run by generated by OpenSSL and then verified by OpenSSL at the uh, at the very end. So it's a, it's a sort of generic toolkit that is very widely used. It you know generates the TLS certificates as we were talking last time uh, into the system. So. So uh, when it's what we would consider in the industry, kind of air quotes, critical infrastructure. It's a, it's a very widely used uh, piece of open source, uh, and it does something that's very operation critical, right? You know, if you break encryption, you break many things. Um, and I guess you can't uh, claim to have bank level encryption uh, after, uh, after that happens. So, oh, it's uh, always military level encryption. That, that's exactly right. Um, and so, so it's a big deal when projects like this uh, announce security vulnerabilities. So, 
what ended up happening was uh, was our OpenSSL came out and they uh, announced, uh, according to their own process, it's a it's a very mature open source project. It's got a very mature community behind it. And they came out and said, hey, listen, in a week's time, we're going to have a new release. And according to our policy, we have to also inform the community that this will fix a critical security vulnerability. And that, those words, critical, really are quite significant in, uh, in information security parlance because when security vulnerabilities come out, we score them according to a sort of standard scoring system, and we try and figure out, uh, try and figure out using that, you know, how easy it is to exploit the vulnerability, how, how many privileges you had. There's a there's a lovely calculator out there that you can use to play around and see what scores come out. Anything classed over nine is called critical, really, in this parlance, and that's a big deal. Uh, out of ten. Out of ten, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And it's it's called the common vulnerability scoring system, um, and it's a three point one version nowadays. What it is, so so um, when something uh, when you know a big project says there's a critical security vulnerability, a lot of gulping starts happening, because probably the world's most famous first named security vulnerability of all time, called Heartbleed, uh, was also a critical security vulnerability that affected. Uh, open SSL. So we had a little bit of a momentary sort of hype cycle uh, in the industry. Um, and over the week, uh, over the week, everybody was expecting it to happen. You know, we were advocating for folks to get ready to audit things, because if it really was as bad as uh, it was claimed, you know, that could have been worse than log for shell, uh, just frankly, uh, you know, and that was already a big deal. So so um, uh, luckily throughout the week, uh, the community rallied in. Uh, many people uh, worked with the OpenSSL project uh, to test those uh, potential security vulnerabilities. And, uh, and uh, luckily over the course of the week, what ended up happening was uh, the vulnerability got downgraded and split into two. So, so now uh, there's not just a single critical security vulnerability, there's two, uh, two security vulnerabilities CV 2022, 3786, and 3602, uh, both of which are basically uh, email address uh, length buffer overflow type of vulnerabilities. So, so what that means is, um, is um, uh, when, you have a, uh, when you have a certificate and it's got the email field, if you do certain things uh, in that and you send a, a maliciously formed certificate into, uh, into OpenSSL, uh, it will cause a buffer overflow. Um, luckily, uh, so the buffer overflow is generally very bad things. You know, those are usually the things that lead to yep. remote code execution capability. Definitely don't want to have those. Uh, you know, and again, those are things that cause gulping. But luckily, throughout the course of the week, they realized that in real world circumstances, when you really look at this, it's very unlikely that you can really exploit this uh, at the level. That's why they were downgraded to seven and a half CVSS, which classes as high, uh, and that releases a lot of tension in a lot of foreheads, uh, just because uh, that means that uh, it still can cause denial of service, so it's definitely still something to patch out, but luckily it's less severe. Another mitigating circumstance here is that it only affects the latest versions of OpenSSL, the 3.x, version line and that's relatively new I think it was only published about a year ago so about 90% of the world still runs on OpenSSL 1 uh, series which is another conversation to be had but that means that both the exposure of this particular piece of code is low and the actual real life exploitability is high there's you know buffer overflow protections in operating systems themselves nowadays compared to 10 years ago 
So in practice, luckily, this was a sort of missed shot, and it's a good thing that it was, uh, because it could have potentially been quite quite big. Yeah, yeah. So I remember us talking about this last time. So the, the, the code would only get executed, the, the exploitable part of the code that checks the email address only gets executed if the certificate is signed by, by a trusted authority. So you either have to trick that authority into signing something malicious, or you need to also control the, um, the malicious uh, authority. And um, one of my first thoughts was, well, isn't that an implementation detail? Might not other implementations uh, do it in a different order? But this does specifically only affect OpenSSL. Other, um, other encryption libraries uh, might not have the bug at all, but you mentioned that they, uh, they would have checked probably. Yeah, so, uh, nothing so you know, yeah, as, 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 you know, as is common with open source, um, uh, the reality is there's often forks, there's other projects. So as is, uh, as is you know, common, uh, there's other forks of OpenSSL, the one series, which is now in its sort of final uh, uh, long-term uh, maintenance versions. And, you know, they're pushing people to start adopting 3.x. Uh, so there are other libraries out there and it's not uncommon, you know, part of the anxiety about this is when there's a high profile security vulnerability, it comes out. Uh, the first line of anxiousness is really, you know, people will start inventing ways of exploiting it. You start seeing POC code and gists in GitHub very, very quickly, right? You know, literally within the scope of minutes of a vulnerability coming out, if it's, it's, if it's exploitable enough and easy enough, you will have snippets of code of how to, how to run this thing. and doesn't take yeah, long. Of course, for everybody wants to be the first to publish right. something working exploit. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And then, you know, it doesn't take very long before somebody writes a script to just ping every IP in the world and uh, see what happens. Right. So, so it's, um, it, you know, that, that can cause anxiety. And, you know, for example, if you look at log for shell, uh, which is kind of a comparative, you know, that actually realized what actually ended up happening was a lot of sort of black, white and gray hat attention was paid to it. And so we started seeing derivative security vulnerabilities in that same project. So there was actually four other CVs in, in Log4j that were opened, less severe than, you know, obviously Log4Shell itself. Uh, but there were also uh, security vulnerabilities opened up in Logback, in, in, in other, you know, forks of Log4Shell as well. Uh, there was a new security vulnerability in Log4j1 that was kind of related, but not really. So often what ends up happening is when the world, the eye of Sauron turns, uh, so does, so does uh, the attention. And often from an uh, action side, we only really pay attention to the very first one. So a lot of this stuff often has a long tail. And that's why, you know, the fact that this was actually quite thoroughly tested and downgraded ended up being a really good thing. You read on the internet, people were kind of causing it, claiming it to be overhyped. But uh, I'd much ra rather have an overhyped oh, security yeah. than the other way around, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you did talk about Log4j, which, um, if I remember correctly, uh, an exploit was... Isn't that the one that started off as a Minecraft hack? Where someone, where someone tried um, to hack a Minecraft server? So it, that is a good retelling of history. So there was a Minecraft episode in it as well. Uh, oh, but that uh, wasn't the very beginning. And, uh, that wasn't the very beginning. In fact, the very beginning started in uh, the Alibaba research unit, uh, security research unit in China, a security researcher 
uh, over there was researching uh, ways to uh, ways to cause remote code executions and, and and was looking at sort of critical infrastructure pieces. So so um, that particular security vulnerability was really really bad because Log4j, much like um, much like OpenSSL, is very ubiquitous. It, basically, if you run anything in Java and that thing writes logs, which most of our software does. The, the uh, problem was if you wrote a specific stanza, a uh, JMDI, um, you know, call back to an SS, to a LDAP server, um, you could get it essentially to evaluate the code and run the code. You could also put JavaScript in there. You could do a bunch of other sort of sort of specific character things. And what was uh, what was dangerous about all of that was that um, uh, was that um, it's basically everywhere. Anything that runs Java had it. You know, all of a sudden that sort of three billion devices run Java when you install uh, install uh, Oracle's Java uh, on your so machine. So it's basically it remote code like execution as a feature. Yeah, basically that's functionally exactly what it was. Um, and you know, uh, you know, so people started going around trying different places, and Minecraft was one of the first ones because Minecraft, written in Java, uh, logs its stuff, and you know, it turns out if you put things in the chat, you had it. But it also worked on so many other things. Like you could literally put it, I think, in your Apple ID, and you would actually get a ping back, ping back uh, oh, wow. from the service. You could, you could literally put it on text fields, URL fields. Almost anything that wrote a log, log, because logs are dangerous, right? You usually log user input somewhere for you know future keeping yeah. or or uh, secrets. Of course, uh, that's dangerous because every field is potentially an impact. That's what made it such a such a big deal. Um, and you know, literally just last night, so so we so that's almost a year old now, right? And it's probably the most publicized security vulnerability of all time. Like I've never seen BBC Breakfast or CNN <laughs> cover a security vulnerability like this. Uh, and, you know, I think I even explained to my mother that there's really nothing you can do yourself. You just need to ask for all of your service vendors to fix it. Um, but the reality is that um, uh, even to this day, one of the things that we do professionally is we actually run the ecosystem that backs Java open source. So if you install a Maven dependency or a Gradle dependency or you build Android, chances are that you down, actually download it from uh, a service called Maven Central and we mm -hmm. as type operate it. So we run the service, you know, uh, as, a, as a thing. And when you look at the download data, to this day, 40%, nearly 40% of every download of Log4j are still vulnerable to, uh, uh, to um, Log4Cell. 40% of every net download that occurs on Log4j still to those old bundle versions. And, and they're and, probably, um, probably just not all just security researchers. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that is a very thin argument. It's very easy for us to go, oh, you know, it's just a security research. It's a, it's a legacy app that I need to keep maintained. Well, guess what? That probably runs somewhere. Um, and even if it's not public facing, if somebody gets in through, I don't know, a cheeky open SSL vulnerability, um, you know, they can use yeah. it as a pivot point, right? There's, there's loads of these sorts of things. And literally just last night, uh, this, uh, the NSA and CIA published a bulletin that warns the world that there are nation state actors literally actively exploiting uh, Lock4Shell uh, still. So the, even though it feels like these things kind of happen at the moment, right? They get really overhyped and overblown. The reason why they get overblown and why there's so much gasping about it is because there's a long tail to it. 
Uh, and even now, the, these are, you know, Microsoft Access vulnerabilities are another one that kind of, you know, often get spoken about in the industry. It's not the net new security vulnerability that kills you. It's these highs and criticals that get left unaddressed that really uh, kind of cause the actual compromise later down the line. And we're kind of in that danger zone with many of these. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, one of the things I learned when I did my uh, certical, certified ethical hacker recently is that a, a lot of the work is not, you know, doing in-depth kind of cryptanalysis and finding a new exploit, but just scanning which version of Windows they're running, finding inevitably it's outdated, and then literally almost having a lookup table of, oh, I can run this and this and this exploit. So that is, that is um, certainly a problem. But let's get back to no, it's a huge, um, the, you yeah. know, just to comment on that, like literally, literally, that is the most common thing. You can go to websites like if you've never been to showdown.io, literally just put a server header in there. Many web services lovingly put their, uh, put their, um, uh, uh, you know, version number in the headers uh, as they kind of produce it. So from a adversary perspective, uh, easy thing to do, find web services that I can compromise by searching the header in Shodan, you know, usually find a hundred thousand of whatever that you're looking for. Yeah. And then, you know, use those IP lists or any other lists to literally see what sticks, right? You know, it's very easy to find these exploitable applications using a trick like that. Um, and that's kind of what we're defending against. That's the reason why it's such a, such a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Shodan.io, also known as the hacker search engine. I'll put a link of, uh, about, to all of these things that we're mentioning in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, but what I wanted to talk about is the difference in disclosure uh, between, well, responsible disclosure and irresponsible disclosure. And I think uh, the OpenSSL vulnerability of the 1st of November, I'm not going to recite a CV number by, by heart like you did, um, but that one has is a model of uh, responsible disclosure, and I I believe Lock for Shell is not quite. Um, can you compare the two, and can you talk to what responsible disclosure looks like? And uh, I think last time we also talked a bit, but it veered into the philosophical. Um, is there an argument to be made that if we give uh, an advance warning of a week? to the community saying there is a critical exploit, that it's kind of motivation for bad actors to try and find it? Um, or is that not really of concern because they're so well hidden and you've got really big teams looking for them all the time anyway, that a week's notice doesn't so, do anything? So, um, yeah, I think um, that was really the point of contention. Like, should the projects really have done this? So in, 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 in um, most open source projects cases, right? You know, a security vulnerability is usually announced alongside the fix. So when we when we talk about uh, talk about you know these security issues, there's actually a lot of nuance to this, right? Because it only really broadly applies to new vulnerabilities in uh, in you know a given project. But for example, the way that open source open SSL uh, does it is they have a very robust security policy. It's very maturely run. And as a part of it, you know, one of the things that they did was they announced that there, yes, there is a critical security vulnerability, and yes, the code is open, anyone can read it, but um, it's highly unlikely without any sort of guiding information uh, to the contrary that somebody's going to go about and find it. That being said, 
I'm not going to lie, made me a little bit uncomfortable uh, because, because uh, you know, announcements like that can also be a trigger for a lot of bad eyes to start looking, right? You know, because the, the code is open, you can look and, you know, maybe it will motivate you to try new things and give you inspiration, who knows, right? Uh, but by and large, when you look at the outcome uh, of what ended up happening, it raised awareness of the issue. Uh, I think a lot of companies did a preemptive audit, at least everybody who's in a WhatsApp group with me did. And uh, uh, and um, uh, a lot of people discovered, turns out they weren't using OpenSSL free and you know it wasn't such a big deal after all. Uh, as vendors, we also latched onto it. We we raised awareness of it, and you know that uh, helped people uh, help people uh, kind of take a proactive stance. Usually, what ends up happening is when the security vulnerability comes out, it's a fire drill, right? It's if it's a critical thing, it's ubiquitous. It's drop everything. The first step is always run an audit. You know, find where it is. It's always painful. What about our vendors? You know, the lawyers knocking on your door. Hey, you know, the legislators asking me questions. There's there's this whole mess of confusion that occurs, and that's fundamentally what makes this so painful. Is because nobody really has a plan for this stuff to happen. And you know, one of the things that we do, uh, again on a sort of annual basis, if we publish a publish a report, we we call it the state of the software supply chain, and and we look at you know I think it's the eight annual version this year. We look at open source consumption, how people react to things. Um, and one of the interesting things is this year, people kind of uh, reported that, hey, we think that we're doing a great job at charting our dependency chain. We understand where the dependency chains are um, versus uh, versus when you look at the actual results, 96% of every open source download that has a vulnerability also has a patched version out there. So people are actually not downloading the fixed versions, even though they feel like they are. So. So that's the responsible disclosure. That drives you towards good behavior. Now, a dangerous uh, form of disclosure is leaking out, you know, the exploit code early. You know, one of the kind of problems in the industry, if you will, is a lot of uh, even sort of white hat uh, activities driven by reputation, right? You know, you you gain your notoriety and your bug bounties by making a lot of noise uh, about, hey, I found this thing. Here's my Write up. Here's my code. Here's uh, the indicators of compromise. All that stuff, um, and you know that can lead some down a path, especially inexperienced folks, uh, where they you know either you know just literally leak it uh, early, like in anticipation, and, and don't collaborate with the project, uh, right? Um, or they um, uh, or they get impatient. They set you know deadlines that are unnecessarily tight. On, on these projects that are by and large run voluntarily and then they leak it out. So that is a bad situation because now you have a known exploit out there without any potential fix or the fix is coming. That's kind of what ended up happening with OpenSSL, sorry, uh, Log4j, because the exploit code for uh, Log4Shell actually leaked out like two hours or uh, six hours or a day before uh, the actual fix was uh, out there. And that was due to Due to, I think it was spreading in a uh, in a uh, Weem chat group somewhere, and you know, kind of security researchers amongst others, and then it kind of caught out. So, so the reality is, uh, reality is uh, that's obviously not desirable. Um, and you know, really, it's it's kind of a tango between the project managing that incoming closure and acknowledging it, not just ignoring it. That's what leads to this behavior, but it's also an understanding from the researchers part that hey, you know, we're gonna do this. There's a there's a really good uh, set of guidelines uh, actually from the Open Source Software Security Foundation or OpenSSF 
uh, from their uh, vulnerability disclosure working group. They actually have a really sort of robust website. I'll send you the link afterwards, where they actually list like here's best practice on how to set this infrastructure out. Yeah, yeah. Please do send me the link, and then uh, we'll put them all in the show notes. So you mentioned uh, just now uh, one of the first things is we do an audit, we see where it runs. So that I think is um, one of the one of the key questions I wanted to get to in uh, in today's episode. If I am just a bog standard. Uh, well, there's probably no such thing, but a box standard IT company, I probably have more than one product. You know, I have uh, possibly microservices. I po- possibly have uh, services internally supporting my, maybe my customer support team. I probably have um, jobs running on a schedule. Um, I didn't say cron jobs there in order to not start a fight, but uh, I have <laughs> probably dozens, uh, if not hundreds of different jobs, each with their own dependencies. Uh, so it's probably a huge challenge to figure out uh, which dependencies I actually run, especially because there's direct dependencies and then indirect dependencies. And then even on the same system, you could have uh, a dependency uh, installed in multiple locations for multiple apps. You know, if you use containerized stuff, all of that is namespaced anyway, so there, there's no conflict there either. How do you go about managing that? How do you go about having some sort of overview as to what uh, libraries, dependencies you actually do use? And then on a second step, if you know, how do you find uh, whether there is a vulnerability pertaining to any of those? But let's start with the first part of that question. Yeah, I think it's a very broad question uh, and you often hear analogies like it's a Russian doll or it's an onion and, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's turtles all the way down when it comes to dependencies, right? Because where do you cut the line, right? So let's let's start with some basic facts. Um, when we look at this thing, it's actually in that uh, report that I was referring to, the average Java application more or less has about 148 uh, dependencies in it, right? So. These are uh, both direct dependencies that you yourself as a developer probably will call to for libraries, frameworks, that sort of stuff, and the dependencies of those dependencies, et cetera, et cetera, this turtles all the way down. Um, Probably when you look at a JavaScript application or Polygon application, you can probably say it's two, three hundred very, very easily. If anyone's ever installed a, you know, boilerplate uh, React app, you know, you know what I'm talking about if you look at the, uh, you know, the the classic ha-ha, look at how big the node module folder is, right? So so there's that. There's also supply chain in the servers themselves, right? You know, whether or not you're running it in a container, the container really is a supply chain, right, of different uh, history versions uh, referring one another. Um, the operating system itself has a package manager that has all of these things. It's a, it's a very, very complex thing. Um, and, and the reality is, you know, the world is, struggling with what to do with this and you know in the industry we've been advocating for many many years uh, for the concept of a software bill of materials um, and what a software bill of materials really you know there's a lot of sort of hopes and expectations uh, laid on to software bills of materials or SBOMs as we just say out loud because nobody wants to say that mouthful all the time the thing about SBOMs is really fundamentally they're just a list of a dependency of a given deployable right so you build an application or you deploy an application. What you do is you run a generator that generates a standard format XML or JSON 
that lists all the dependencies, signatures of those dependencies that went into that particular deployable. And you can do similar things with operating system uh, work, you know, run a dpkg index type commands to list out dependencies. Um, then even if you're not using a standardized format, you, you can still run like, I don't know, Maven dependency tree or an npm tree type command in most package managers will have that, right? Or a log file or something like that. The, the reason why you do that is not necessarily to uh, not necessarily to make a remediation easier but it, it you do that because it builds your database of this version at this dependency tree next version you might have changed next version you might have changed again depending on where you're deploying it if you're building it uh, you know during deploy time again that might change you might have to update it uh, but generally speaking what you try and do is build a map of everything uh, everything that has uh, a dependency and their relative uh, uh, relative relationships. So part of the problem with remediating something like log shell, shell isn't just to take yes to the dependent pod, uh, um, you know, upgrade notice that you might get in GitHub if you turn it on by default. There's plenty of tools like that out there to help you kind of understand about security vulnerabilities. The real problem is how deeply ingrained is it in your application? Are you directly responsible for it? Is it coming out as a transitive uh, occurrence in your library? And to help visualize something like that, uh, SBOMs can help. So for example, we just recently released a product, you know, kind of a free tool called the Bomb Doctor. And what the Bomb Doctor does is, um, is um, it um, visualizes an SBOM file. So you, you feed it an SBOM file and it actually draws out those hierarchies and then it looks at you know security vulnerabilities, licensing issues and things like that. So to answer the second part of your question, you could use Bomb Doctor to do all of those things and it's very easy. It's still in sort of preview mode, but very soon it'll be, uh, it'll be out there. It's also in, in our other free tools kind of help you help you get that. So, so there's the fundamental of the so answer should the... be you should probably just, generate just to... an SBOM. Now, in most places, when you say that, they go, well, that means I have to generate an SBOM for every build that I do. And the answer is yes, you do. Fundamentally, because the volume is so big, we have so many dependencies. Average dependency has about 10 different versions. Um, so that's about 1,500 per version, known versions per Java application that you might have, times how many applications you have. Average organization probably has a few hundred. That's a lot of things to manage. So in order for you to manage, the first step is awareness and building a database. This this is something you cannot hand crank. There is no way that you can run this off of an Excel sheet. I've seen companies try uh, and fail miserably because it doesn't connect to the reality of what development is, right? You, you pick and choose these all the time off the shelf. Um, so coming to your second part of your question, once you have that database, you know, you can you can keep it on your, uh, you know, you can keep those files yourself and, you know, run a text search. Um, you know, you can also buy commercial tools such as, you know, the Nexus platform that we sell that actually collects them and builds you uh, a searchable database and then gives you all sorts of information. Really, the second part of the equation is using some sort of uh, automation to look at that dependency tree and start getting visualization of known security vulnerabilities. So, or licensing issues or quality issues even, you know, things like, is this, you know, why are we using a, a logging framework that has two people on GitHub that maintain it over the weekends when we could have a Apache top level project with huge uh, support structures. You know, sometimes and the that's the kind of stuff like that, that Bomb Doctor that, does. Yeah, that's exactly what Bomb Doctor does. It, it kind of helps you 
visualize not just hey you know it's got security vulnerabilities but it actually shows you like in, in sort of a very visual way the other cool thing about it though um not to get too deeply into talking about my own juice here but uh uh, is is that it actually recommends sort of transitive upgrades so that you know if a dependency has a tree underneath it of different nodes of dependencies may, upgrading the parent can resolve many issues downstream right you know because the dependency yeah. chain might have updated and things like that so understanding those it actually kind of gives you recommendations on how to do that and it's, it's pretty neat stuff I'm, I'm i'm pretty excited about it but um Regardless of what you use, right? Um, SBOMs, for example, have this concept of a vulnerability exchange, which is a addition to SBOM formats or standardized formats um, that allows you to talk about security vulnerabilities and exchange information about them. Uh, so you can actually have an SBOM with associated vulnerability info right in it. Um, if you want to collect your own information, there are databases like the Open Source Index, OSS Index out there that tell you about security vulnerabilities as well. So there's plenty of sort of free options out there. A little assembly is required if you want to do it yourself. Or if you're like me and you go, you know what, I can pay someone a little bit of money uh, to solve this problem for me, then you know there are commercial vendors such as ourselves that actually do that for you. So the only thing you really do is set the ground rules of, of uh, here's what I want to be notified of, here's my policy, and then you get the recommendations and, and the notices when something new happens. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of go from a scale of DIY to semi-automated using these open tools to actually, you know, completely automated and, you know, part of your SDLC and all that stuff. Yeah, so there are uh, there are a lot of tools out there because obviously it's not uh, it's not a new problem. <laughs> um, just to dig down on the SBOM uh, a little, uh, you compared it to getting uh, kind of a dependency tree using... Uh, the building functionality of stuff like PKG, NPM, and Maven, and so on, um, are they equivalent? Like, can Bomb Doctor also work off the dependency tree of NPM, or is there a tool to convert them? Do they translate one to one, or how do they compare? Um, no, no, they don't translate one to one. So, an S bomb, as I said, it's a it's a standard. Uh, you know, it's a uh, it's a schema document that has, uh, has a certain format. So there's really two major standards. Uh, one is Cyclone DX, that's the programmer-friendly one. And then there's SPDX, which is a, uh, which is a um, very good uh, format when we're talking about license information and things like that. Both of these are interchangeable. So they have tools that allow you to transfer one from one format to another. So whichever one you want to use, uh, you might have. Now, fundamentally, uh, uh, they fulfill a executive order from the US, the National Institute of Standards has actually defined what a minimum SBOM should be. Uh, and a minimum SBOM should really have uh, package information, dependency information, author information, signatures, things like this. Uh, and in addition, each of these have uh, additions to the schema uh, that allow them to contain other types of information, such as, you know, what is the license of this package? You know, for example, if you've got something with GPL licenses, it can be a bad thing um, or not, depending on your uh, tolerance. Um, they can also contain information about security vulnerabilities using this VEX uh, uh, format uh, uh, as well. But they can contain any information. You can literally attach anything that you want. So, so the idea about these, you know, dependency tree is just literally a list of names and potentially their hierarchy uh, between the two. Uh, this is kind of more fully featured. It describes not only just 
the names, but also all this other stuff, uh, which is useful for many reasons. You know, if you use open source, sometimes the license terms say you need to list the authors. You can use that. You use an SBOM to get that. Uh, the other reason why it's useful is, you know, if you're trying to compare a NPM dependency tree to a Maven dependency tree, because sometimes, you know, Maven packages repackage, I don't know, jQuery or something like that. Uh, having a standard format with a standard referral thing, such as a package URL, which is a way to standardize naming between each of these ecosystems, um, allows you to cross compare and run searches. So if you have a front end and a back end, you can you know combine them uh, together and search for them in unison, kind of understand the whole application in context. So they're not entirely the same thing, uh, and you do have to use specialized tooling to generate a uh, SBOM. Cyclone DX, for example, has like fifty different tools out there for various different configurations and various different applications that you can use. Oh, wow. uh, and you know, basically, you know, the easiest thing, for example, there's a Cyclone plugin for Maven. So you literally just run an MVM Cyclone DX generate thing, and you get an SBOM.json uh, as a result. So it's it's not very hard at all. You can very easily make it a part of a standard build process, uh, or if you're using CI, just a standard build step. And you yeah. know, to me, the SBOM file should probably really be treated the same as any other build artifact, right? It's a it's a list of ingredients. So just like a licensed text or a readme text or you know whatever other build artifacts that you or POM XML that you have as a result of compiling your application, you should probably have a, a POM.json in there as well for that exact same reason. Yeah, okay, I think I see. So um the BOM is I suppose the contents of just the dependency tree. Uh, is a subset of all the information in the SBOM. And um, there are tools that will basically, well, they don't translate from a dependency tree to an SBOM, but they will generate the dependency tree of the same information. So it will generate the SBOM off of the same information that the dependency, dependency tree would have been generated of, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's and exactly then, it. Uh, yeah, and then if I have my SBOM, um, th the frameworks such as Cyclone DX and SPDX that you mentioned, they will have a bunch of uh, upstream libraries to figure out if for a specific dependency there is a vulnerability. Uh, is, is there like one big central library, is like the um, CVE that has all of them? It's not quite that simple, is it? No, unfortunately, here's where we get to the really uh, nuanced edge case world of this world. There is no single standard source of security information in the world. There's a lot of attempts to do that, but just like any any fragmentation problem of standardizing something like this, just doesn't exist, right? There's so, a relevant XKCD uh, about that, isn't there? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a relevant XKCD, XKCD <laughs> somewhere. Uh, I'll put it in right? the show notes. Um, yeah, if we find one, I'd, I'd love to see it. But the whole point, right, is that um, it's very hard to collect this information. So once you have this list, yes, there are open databases. You know, we maintain one. It's uh, OSS Index, and you can use that to compare uh, your SBOM to a list of known security vulnerabilities. Um, that being said, security vulnerabilities can exist in many forms, right? The NVD is a standard location, but it was really designed about 20 years ago for operating system packages. It doesn't really work well with application dependencies. Um, and also, it's not 
very often updated. It takes on average about 60 days for security vulnerability to actually make it into a CVE. Um, oh, wow, that's long. And there's, there's also no authority that checks for correctness. Like there is no, you know, if I decide to open a CVE and I describe it pretty well, I think somebody uh, had that uh, Janet Jackson CVE that they opened up like 20 years later. It's There's like literally, so basically if you play the Janet Jackson song uh, on old Dell laptops, oh, it would yes. actually cost the hard disk. So, 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 so these things do exist, right? These databases, but there's no oversight on them. So that's why, you know, really commercially, you know, there are organizations, again, such as ourselves, that actually curate that data and do their own security research on top. Because the reality is you have to do a lot of additional work to look at a security vulnerability to actually know if it affects you, where it is, how you exploit it, things like that. So we, for example, do that for our customers so that they don't have to. But in sort of uh, if, if anyone wants to uh, start uh, going for it, it's, it's a complex problem. There's hundreds of different places. Some security vulnerabilities literally are just like pull requests on GitHub. Uh, the projects don't necessarily even understand that it's a security vulnerability. They just think it's a bug. So, so this is where it gets kind of murky. There are some attempts, again, to collect that information and standardize it. The OpenSSF uh, really is doing quite a lot to collect different open source ecosystems together to try and uh, try and uh, you know kind of find standard ways of work operating like this, um, and they're really uh, they're really kind of driving a lot of this sort of legislation, standardization around SBOM security practices, all all this stuff. So I think in the future this stuff will get easier, but practically in the now, uh, you really do have to do your homework about what you're getting and where you're having it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So to recap. Just a quick bracket, the relevant XKCD is number 927. Um, beyond like 1000, 2000, I tend to not know them anymore. I used to be really into XKCD in secondary school, but been lapsing recently. But so to recap for um, our listeners who are not uh, huge corporations with dedicated security teams, and even in that case, I think you mentioned last time, if you look in big dedicated security teams, how many people are dedicated to supply chain security, uh, the numbers are still shockingly low, right? Um, Very low. So, I mean, it's a person maybe. Yeah. So for the kind of more average developer, maybe solo developer, maybe small to medium uh, enterprise, to recap, create an SBOM for all of your uh, deployables uh, and then use uh, tools such as uh, bomb doctor in order to see if there are uh, any known vulnerabilities and if you don't manage it by yourself anymore consider going to sonatype uh, and asking for professional help and your offering there would be <laughs> nexus which does uh, which does all of that so uh, if i understood this right bomb doctor is, is free is open source and nexus is I suppose also free, I believe, but also as a paid tier. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I'll leave you with one nugget to, to kind of uh, think about uh, and think on. So tooling without culture and without acceptance that this might be a problem is, is useless, right? Yeah. You know, the reality oh, yeah, is uh, reality is there. So funny enough, um, funny enough, uh, the easiest way to think about this problem is to imagine in your mind's eye tomorrow 
in whatever language that you're using, there's a new critical security vulnerability. It's as bad as log for shell it's spread out. It requires your immediate attention. First, ask yourself, what would you do? Like compared to last time, if you, if you had to deal with log for shell, what would you do differently? Secondly, where is it? How would you know? Who would you need to talk to? Where, what will you do today to solve that problem? Thirdly, who do you need to talk to? Because, uh, because uh, there are other people affected. We tend to think that it's just a developer problem because as developers, we make those choices of adopting them. But it often affects, even in a small company, the entire company's bottom line. So a lot of people will be interested. And not just you, but often your customers will be interested in a security vulnerability like that as well, uh, whether or not you've addressed it or not. Um, and fourthly, uh, how would you know how to fix it? Where do you get that information about that vulnerability that tells you how to how to fix it? All of these are, that is a, the simplest possible mental exercise to do. And often when you ask that in a room, uh, you know, in a conference or things like this, you get a lot of blank stares, right? Which kind of suggests that a lot of us will probably still think that it's an ad hoc thing. So kind of preparing, even if it's just on paper, a little bit of a workflow on how to deal with this stuff subverts a lot of pain. That's probably the best lesson I can really teach about how to how to deal with this. These things will always happen, like literally hundreds of them happen every single day, uh, and not all of them get the press. So being kind of prepared and also being prepared to deal with it quickly makes life a lot easier because you're really also doing dependency management as an aside uh, and a, as a result. So all of a sudden, dependency help becomes a little bit easier. Ilka, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you so, so much for coming on a second time after our technical difficulties, uh, which is what I'm going to call my incompetence uh, the first time around. And I uh, hope to have you on the show again sometime in the future. No, absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you.